Hi, my name is Dr. Karen Frick, and I'm a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and a co-founder and the chief scientific officer of Estrogenics Therapeutics, Inc. Femtech, to me, is any new technology that can improve women's health, particularly women's mental health, especially in getting them through a very difficult and, and often not discussed part of their life, which is menopause. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. Before we kick off today's interview, I want to remind you about our upcoming summit on June 28th. Be sure to register at femhealthinsights.com or femtechfocus.com. All righty. So today I interviewed Dr. Karen Frick. Dr. Karen is Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and is co-founder and chief scientific officer of Estrogenics Therapeutics. She has almost 30 years of experience studying the neurobiology mechanisms underlying memory formation, with a particular focus on the cellular and molecular mechanisms through which estrogens regulate memory, hot flashes, and mood. She's published over 110 articles and has been awarded the Society of Women's Health Research and Medtronic Prize for Scientific Contributions to Women's Health. Estrogenics aims to dramatically improve women's health by developing safe, clinically proven treatments for physical and mental effects of menopause. They're developing compounds to reduce menopause symptoms like hot flashes and memory dysfunction without the adverse health risks associated with traditional estrogen therapies. In this interview, we discuss types of memory loss in humans, the relationship between estrogen and the brain, and the link between hot flashes and dementia. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the science behind menopause and memory loss. Learn more about estrogenics at estrogenics.com. That's E-S-T-R-I-G-E-N-I-X.com. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Frick. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Brittany. It's great to see you. Are you in your office? <laughs> I am in my office, yes. Where are Back you calling us person. from today? Um, I'm calling from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Is it spring yet? No, oh, no, sadly. It's April 24th. It's still not I spring. I know. Yeah, we got a tease of spring a couple of weeks ago when it was in the 80s, and uh, today it's in the 40s. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. God bless you and all of our Northern <laughs> listeners. We have a lot of Canadians I know as well on the, on the podcast. So, um, Bring God us bless a painful all time. Of you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, we, I'm really excited to dive into today's very scientific uh, talk. It's one of my favorite things to do is be all nerdy and talk nerdy. So we're definitely going to get into that, but first and foremost, we always love to meet our guests. So could you please tell our listeners a little bit about your background, you know, where you're from, what did you study and how did you end up working on this? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm originally from New Jersey, Northern New Jersey, outside of New York city. Um, and, um, uh, 
did my undergraduate work at a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Franklin and Marshall College. Became really interested in neuroscience there, so went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins, um, where I studied how uh, memory changes with age in male rats, um, and then and how the brain changes with age, and then went to do a, a um, my postdoctoral work at another small liberal arts college, um, Wellesley College, outside of Boston. Um, where I started becoming interested in what was going on in not only males, but also females um, in terms of how cognitive aging um, happened in both males and females and um, made the interesting discovery that um, the trajectory of cognitive aging was different in male and females. And these are now mice because we shifted species of it to to mice um, and found that in female mice, um, aging started, that's cognitive aging, memory impairments started earlier. And it seemed to occur around the time of their equivalent of menopause. Um, so started to do some work treating them with hormones to see if we could reverse that age-related memory loss. Around that time, I then went to my first faculty position. Um, so I became an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Yale University. And I was there for 10 years before being recruited out to the Department of Psychology here at UW-Milwaukee. Um, but during that time, uh, started really trying to understand the neurobiology of how estrogens affect memory. Um, we've known for a very long time, very long, I'd say about 30 years or so, that um, if we treat um, a female, rat, mouse, um, women um, with exogenous estrogens that we can improve memory function. Um, but how that happens has a been a bit of a mystery. And so my lab uh, tries to understand the cellular molecular mechanisms in the brain that create that, uh, that, that enhanced memory. And so the work that we do with estrogenics really arose from that basic research that we do in the lab. Oh, I love all of it. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> My first one is, um, how do you measure memory in mice and oh. rats, age-dependent memory? Yes. Yeah, that's a really good question. There are a lot of ways in which we could do that. Um, when I first started, we used a, a task that was very popular at the time for testing spatial navigation um, memory is called a Morris water maze, where you have a very large tank of water that's um, made opaque with some non-toxic white paint, and the animals swim around until they find a, a an escape platform that's just underneath the surface of the water. Um, that's how we made that initial discovery um, in middle-aged males and females. Um, but the downside of that particular uh, test is that it takes several days to train the animals to get good at finding that platform. And so uh, about 20 years ago, we switched to a couple of different um, object-based tasks that the animals learn really quickly. So now we simply place the animals into a, a big white box with two objects placed near the corners of the box. And we simply, it's a dimly lit room, so um, they feel and we habituate them to the environment so they feel comfortable moving around and exploring. Um, and then we keep them in the box until they've accumulated 30 seconds exploring the two objects. Now, during what we call training, um, those two objects are the same. So they're identical. Um, and then uh, in most of our experiments, 
we, um, we take the animals out of the box after they've explored the objects. And then we try to manipulate their memory by treating them with estradiol, uh, which is one of the most potent of the estrogens, um, or other compounds that might prevent estradiol from enhancing memory. So we get a sense of what chemicals in the brain are, are necessary or molecular events in the brain are necessary for estradiol to regulate memory. Then for testing, we bring the animals back into the same environment with two objects. But in one case, uh, in one test that we call object recognition or novel object recognition, we take one of those training objects and swap it out for a new object. Because mice and rats, we can use the same test with rats, like novelty, if they remember the familiar training objects, they're going to spend more time exploring the new object because Mm. it's interesting you know, the other one's boring. They've had plenty of time to, to explore it. Um, so that allows us to assess how well they remember the familiar training objects. Um, we can do a variant of that task where instead of introducing a new object, we simply take one of the novel objects and move it to a new place. And again, and that seems like a really subtle change that I didn't believe at first that the mice would, would, notice just moving an object from one corner to the other, but they really do. Um, and so if they remember the original locations of the objects, they'll spend more time exploring the moved object. Mm. So these are very, very simple tasks that don't, um, they really just rely on the animal's uh, natural inclination to explore things. Um, but they really help us get at um, the animal's knowledge of what and where things are in the environment. And because those tasks are learned so rapidly, they, um, they allow us to tie these rapid changes in the brain to um, their memory. That is incredible. Um, another question before we dive even deeper, because what we're going to yeah. talk about today is female human, female aging yep. and estrogen and you know how that all affects it. I can't help but ask first when we're talking about like the experimental design here, do mm-hmm. mice and rats go through menopause? Like, or is there some kind of equivalent here yeah. that we're looking at? That's a really excellent question. Um, they, they don't go through menopause per se because they don't bleed like we do in a, in a normal menstrual cycle, but there are um, key hormonal changes. So they, they experience ovarian aging, um, in many respects like humans do. And as a result, there are changes in the pituitary, the part of the brain that is involved in um, making and releasing the, uh, the hormones that tell the ovaries to mature an egg and release the egg for ovulation. So um, while it's not exactly the same as menopause, it is, uh, there are a lot of similarities that lead to impaired um, fertility and um, uh, many kinds of changes in the brain that we know are common to women um, post-menopause. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Like the public health yeah. implications and memory loss on the female human population? Cause I am For curious sure. if ma- female mice and rats also have more memory loss than the male mice and men because of this estrogen thing. So let's first yep. talk about though in humans, um, what yes. is the kind of public health surveying of like, what is memory loss? How is it different from dementia? Just kind of give us a brief overview, like the introduction paragraph of your papers, yes. you know, like <laughs> what's happening with memory in humans? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all really, really good questions that unfortunately very many, uh, that most women 
don't know about and many physicians don't know about. So um, it turns out that women are much at much greater risk of developing what we call age-related memory decline as well as dementia. So let's start out with just that, right? So there's there's um, uh, there's age-related memory decline, which mo- many people will experience, and that's the occasional of forgetting of names, dates, you know, where you parked your car, things that um, are are what are considered within the realm of normal. Mm-hmm. For older people, uh, both women and men, I mean, you know, as we get older, it's much more difficult for us to remember, especially new information that lifelong, you know, things we that happened to us when we were children or your wedding or, you know, big life events. We tend to remember those things very, very well, uh, you know, into advanced age, but it's oftentimes difficult for older people to to learn new information or retain that information. Yeah. Now that's different from dementia and there are numerous causes of dementia um, of which probably the one people are most familiar with is Alzheimer's disease, um, which is a pathological condition that's that's different in many key ways from normal aging. And there's basically three hallmark pathologies of, of Alzheimer's disease. These um, sticky protein balls, if you will, um, that accumulate first inside cells and then outside of, of cells, neurons, um, called amyloid plaques. And while we do get, well, there's amyloid plaques and then there's neurofibrillary tangles. And those are um, sort of like, um, they are tangles of fibers that accumulate inside of cells. And both plaques and tangles uh, prevent normal um, neuronal communication. Um, the third neuropathology is just cell loss. Um, so if you look at the brain of an Alzheimer's patient, an advanced Alzheimer's patient versus a normal brain, there's a lot less brain tissue and, and more open fluid filled spaces, um, in the brain. Um, we do get some of those, uh, happening in the normal human brain, but, um, not nearly to the extent that you see in an Alzheimer's brain. And of course, that comes with this sort of the profound memory loss and um, numerous other personality changes, um, you know, inability to, to do basic um, feed yourself and so on towards the end of that disease. But there are other, co- uh, other causes of dementia as well, Lewy body dementia, frontal, um, uh, frontotemporal dementia that, for instance, um, uh, oh, the guy who was in Die Hard. Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on his name. Uh, the actor um, uh, just was recently diagnosed with. So, um, so there are a, a number of, of of causes of dementia. See, I, I, I'm having my own sort of. You're having your own moment. My own moment. <laughs> Isn't there. That a good thing you, as a dementia researcher, you could always well, use that as your backup joke. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know. You just, everybody has, you know, forgets a name every once in a while. As a woman's health That's normal. Like, leader, I just say I'm on my period. Like, that's what I say. You know? Like, oh, I'm on my period. Right. So, you know, and for reasons that we're still really trying to understand, women tend to be at greater risk of, of these kinds of normal age-related memory dec- uh, decline as well as dementia. We think that a good portion of that has to do, well... Some people have argued that it's because women live longer than men. And so the, so for instance, for Alzheimer's disease, the chief risk factor, aside from if you have 
There are a few families that have um, genetic mutations that do um, uh, increase their risk, but um, age is the primary risk factor for, for Alzheimer's disease. So aside from age, though, we do know that women are at more risk um, because of menopause and the hormone losses of menopause. There's also a, a genetic factor that's a risk factor, not a mutation, that um, in women is more detrimental for uh, increasing their risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and there are other potential lifestyle, stress-related, hot flash-related, you know, menopause symptom-related um, uh, reasons that contribute to women's impaired memory. And you asked earlier about the, the public health implications of that. Mm. Um, obviously, those are pretty huge, right? So if, if women are having difficulty remembering things, that's going to affect their performance on the job. It's going to affect their performance um, at home if they're managing families or caring for, for loved ones. Um, and, you know, the, the, the extent to which we can extend women's and certainly men's as well, but, but women's cognitive health, um, the better, uh, especially because, I mean, women are often sort of the nucleus of, of families and these days increasingly sort of multi-generational, uh, families. And so it's, it's important to make sure that, um, everybody's brain is functioning yeah. well as long as, yeah. as humanly possible. Especially when half of our politicians are like over 70, right? You're like, oh my right. God, your brains biologically, we know are not at the top prime. Why are you in charge? But <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. Um, uh, you know, it's so funny how much the research has changed because in my undergrad, which by the way, you may be familiar was Drew University, smaller Bullard oh, yeah. School in New Jersey. Yeah. Yep. And um, I was studying under uh, Dr. Roger Knowles, head of the neuroscience department, and we were studying Alzheimer's under an HHMI mm -hmm. grant, which listeners is like a very prestigious, like highly regarded funding source for scientific research. Oh, yeah. And I, in that lab, understood that women had more Alzheimer's because we live longer. And that was in mm -hmm. 2012. Like that was 10 yeah. years ago. So it's kind of crazy to me, like this really like award-winning, you know, academic researcher, like that's just how science goes though. It updates, right? But it to does. think that only 12 years ago, I was under the impression that it was, I didn't have these conversations. It's just, you know, I look yeah. back and I'm like, oh, I was destined to be femtech, you know, like <laughs> kind of always <laughs> all the different things I did. I'm like, oh, yep, there's a women's health angle. But, um, you know, can you tell us actually about the history of estrogen in the brain? And is this like incredibly new science? Has this always been there, but people kind of like didn't really believe it or put it on the side? Kind of tell us about the history there. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's relatively new. So it's really, you know, there were, there were data that had been published in the little bit in the sixties and seventies and starting in the eighties, suggesting that estrogens could affect non-reproductive parts of the brain, right? There was a lot of research on estrogens and reproduction. Um, but in the mid eighties or so, um, I'd say, uh, there was a, a researcher in Canada, Barbara Sherwin, who was doing work with women who um, had their ovaries removed for medical reasons. So they were having mm -hmm. these younger women undergoing this this medical surgical uh, hist uh, ovarectomy, uh, and found that women who didn't go on estrogens after uh, surgery had a loss, particularly of, of verbal memory, 
um, mm. capacity. And so um, around that time, the technology in the field, antibodies and, and other things uh, became uh, started to improve so that we could see where estrogen receptors were located in the brain. And lo and behold, it turns out that there are estrogen receptors all throughout the brain, not just in um, reproductive areas of the brain. And just for our listeners really fast, the implications of that means that, so estrogen is a hormone and it's a mm-hmm. signal to tell your body to do something, but yep. it's similar to a mailbox. That hormone needs to be delivered somewhere to tell the exactly. cell, i.e. the resident of that home, like, Hey, start to do this or stop doing that. And exactly. so receptors are the mailboxes. So exactly. we have tons of estrogen mailboxes in our uterus and our ovaries because, you know, it's pretty obvious we need estrogen for the reproductive. But what you're saying is that we've discovered recently that like there's tons of estrogen mailboxes in our brain. Exactly. Exactly. I love the analogy of a mailbox. I've never heard that before, but that works really, really well. And there are multiple types of mailboxes. There are sort of three in particular that have been identified and are are recognized. Um, And we know that there are lots of these mailboxes, these receptors in parts of the brain um, that your viewers may have heard about, uh, the, the hippocampus, um, parts of the cortex, uh, like the prefrontal cortex, that we know are really important for um, many different kinds of memory, remembering facts, remembering um, places out in the world um, that deteriorate with aging and, and Alzheimer's disease. And so back in the early 90s, there was a lab um, at Rockefeller University. Uh, Bruce McEwen was the, the lead, uh, the, the, the PI, we call it the principal investigator of that lab. Um, and that lab showed that these, um, these neurons in the hippocampus called uh, pyramidal neurons, they're the primary excitatory neurons that we thought are responsible for um, the kinds of memories that the hippocampus um, helps to form. Um, it turns out that those neurons, the, the, the structure of those neurons changes over the course of the rodent version of the menstrual cycle. Um, it's called the estrous cycle. And that if you remove the ovaries from those females, that you see uh, a, a, a reduction in basically the information receiving parts of that neuron um, that can be restored by estrogen treatment. And so that seems like a fairly simple discovery, I suppose, but that was game changing in the field of, of cognition, of hormones and cognition, because nobody had realized that this brain region that people have been studying for many decades that we knew was important for memory was really sensitive to estrogens. Wow. And so that launched... No, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to ask, can we see changes in memory for women, female humans uh, uh, during our menstruation cycle? Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, people have looked at that, uh, including um, uh, my lab with in collaboration with, with colleagues. Um, you can see some cognitive changes over the course of the cycle, but it's really pretty minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that most young, younger women and young, younger animals um, are generally functioning at pretty much optimal capacity. And yeah, so, so even if there's a little variation there, yep. they have other things that are kind of backing up. Exactly. Them up. What about exactly. during pregnancy or breastfeeding? We hear about oh, moms talking yes. about like brain fog. Does that have to yes. do with this? You think? Um, it, yes, it can, because there's, there are other hormones at play in pregnancy, particularly progesterone. 
Okay. Um, so, you know, during the course of the menstrual cycle, the, the ovaries are producing estrogens and there are multiple forms of estrogens. So, you know, that's, um, uh, when we talk about estrogen, that's really a misnomer. There are, are multiple forms that our bodies make, but estrogens and progesterone are really the two classes, two types of, of sex steroid hormones that are produced by the ovaries. And what happens during progesterone is that progesterone levels get very high to, to maintain a pregnancy. Progesterone comes from pro gestate. So it's like its main uh-huh. goal is to keep the uterine lining nice and thick for that that uh, embryo to implant in. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And so um, progesterone can have, um, can have some memory impairing effects. Progesterone, those hippocampal neurons also respond to progesterone as well. So, um, you know, this, this in pregnancy and postpartum, you know, for some women, uh, the brain has a hard time handling those high levels of, of progesterone, and that can lead mm-hmm. to some, you know, some temporary brain fog uh, types of issues that can be resolved once progesterone levels, you know, are kind of normalized. Now, again, another question. I told you I'd do this. I'd ask you a bunch yeah, of questions that were right. not on our prepared list. <laughs> that's know okay. This. I'd do this. Um, but uh, what about birth control? Can your birth control affect uh, your memory if your birth control is progesterone and estrogen? I, I have to tell you, that's a really good question. Um, that's not – it's a question that was difficult to answer. It's difficult for me to answer because I don't do – that kind of research, but I will mm-hmm. tell you that very little research has been done wow. on the effects of birth control on cognition. Um, and it's really important though, uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, millions of women are taking uh, birth control. So it's really important to know what kind of effects that it might have while they're on it. And then what the long-term effects might be that could affect their trajectory of cognitive aging. But the other thing is that um, millions of women start um, oral contraception, um, or other forms of contraception when they're still adolescents. Um, and, uh, you know, when the, because the, the, the human brain isn't really fully developed until the early twenties. And so women start taking these hormones during their, their teenage years. We really have no good data on, you know, how that might affect their, their brains, um, good or bad. I mean, estrogens are really important, um, what we call trophic factors for, uh, for neurons in the brain. That means that they, it's a chem- trophic factors are chemicals that help neurons function well. And so, um, for neurons in these cognitive regions of the brain, like the hippocampus and cortex, um, <clears throat> we think that women are at risk of, uh, memory loss when they're middle-aged is because their brains are used to seeing pretty high levels of these hormones after puberty, right? They're, they're even during the lower points of, uh, low hormone points, the menstrual cycle, um, their brains are pretty well bathed in estrogens and progesterone. And so the neurons get used to that. And then, you know, the, the hormone losses of, of menopause are steep, so you go from these very high levels to over the course of five to 10 years, um, very low levels of these hormones. And so we think that um, uh, that puts these neurons at risk of, of age-related changes that are happening in the brain, oxidative changes, me- metabolic changes that um, impair 
the functioning of these cells. Now, with respect to oral contraception, um, uh, you know, you're adding back some estrogen, you're adding some estrogens to the system. So chances are that's not a bad thing for overall brain health. Um, uh, and so, you know, but there are colleagues around the world who are, who are now currently really actively studying the effects of, um, of all sorts of contraceptives on brain health because mm-hmm. it's really, really been understudied. Yeah. Wow. So, this you know, is- look for, you know, more data on that in the near future. Do you think that it's previously been hard to measure dementia or memory loss in humans? And maybe that's like part of the delay in research, or is it just because women's health is crazy under researched? <laughs> no one asks basic questions all the time. <laughs> I think it's both of those things. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, really, uh, with respect to to studying women's health, it's just not been a priority um, for uh, federal funding agencies. So. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're well aware, the vast majority of biomedical research um, until fairly recently has been done in males. So males are the standard by which everything else is judged. And so even to a great extent now, you know, females would be the variation on male, like that's what's considered normal. About 10 years ago, uh, now, the, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, mandated that um, all research proposals consider sex as a biological variable. That doesn't mean they have to include both male and female in all studies, but that at the very least, they're considering how sex may be playing a role. The, the end result of that, at least so far, um, there has definitely been an improvement in inclusion, including females in uh, biomedical research studies. So lo and behold, people have actually started to see that there are important sex differences in the effects of, of drugs that. on behavior, right? In the effects of how the brain works and the effects of, of how males and females respond to different stimuli um, on a behavioral level. And so um, <clears throat> we're starting to gain <clears throat> a greater appreciation, excuse me, of, um, how males and females, um, the, you know, uh, in basic research and in the clinic, um, how they differ, and so um, uh, you know, we're 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 starting to make some strides um, in in trying to understand uh, these basic sex differences, but there's still quite a long way to go. Uh, um, so there's that piece of it that we just not enough. Uh, attention has been devoted to uh, to studying women's health and particularly women's mental health. Uh, but you had raised another another possibility as well, and I just can't. I'm, I'm having oh. difficulty remembering <laughs> what was, that was. Or is there uh, was there a lack of techniques for memory um, to measure memory loss oh. quantitatively or scientifically? Know that there was a lack of of methodology for yeah. measuring memory, but I think it's hard. There's been an, a, a greater appreciation, um, uh, especially in the Alzheimer's field, that uh, that biological changes are happening in the brain decades before uh, people actually start to experience symptoms. Mm. And so uh, they've been starting to look earlier and earlier, uh, you know, for I think much of memory, uh, uh, much of the, the work on, on memory loss has been in, in 
senior citizens. So people, mm-hmm. you know, in their sixties and, and beyond, um, which is fine. That's where you start to see the greatest um, memory deficits uh, start to emerge. But there's a growing appreciation that you can start to see signs of some of those things in people in their 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely with respect to to Alzheimer's neuropathology, um, I think there's a pretty good acceptance these days that those changes in the brain are happening, you know, there are starting in the 40s and 50s and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a uh, greater appreciation for starting to assess memory earlier on mm-hmm. in in people which i think may may then start shifting the attention to to early middle age um and perhaps intervening in early age, early middle age um relative to you know waiting until people are in their 60s and 70s um in fact for hormone therapy um the uh the shift is really moving towards trying to uh, to get women, if they're going to take any form of hormone therapy, to have them do it while they're experiencing menopausal symptoms in their early 50s. Because the, the clinical data um, on women in their 60s and beyond suggests that hormone therapy can actually can be somewhat detrimental to those older women, that it can be quite beneficial for, for younger women starting out. Interesting. Well, we talked about the estrogen mailboxes in the brain yeah. cells, right? Yep. Do we know yet what the letter says? <laughs> what is estrogen telling <laughs> uh, um, the cell to do or not to do? Do we know that yet? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so that's something that my lab has been trying to understand. Like, what does the letter say? And, um, you know, it turns out that that the estrogen mailboxes are... Well, they can do a couple of things. Number one, um, they can travel, that message can travel directly to the nucleus of the cell where all the DNA is and cause new genes to be transcribed there. Um, but what we think with respect to memory, um, or at least most of these, these rapid changes in memory that we see are that the mailboxes are interacting with other mailboxes for, um, for other chemicals we call neurotransmitters that are the, the main information um, letters, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. of the brain that are causing rapid chemical changes to happen in the cell um, that are sort of like a cascade of dominoes. Like one falls and then changes happen, the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one that can cause a lot of different things to happen. It can cause new proteins to be made um, so that you can get rapid restructuring of those neurons. It can make um, it can cause proteins to be so it can be, cause proteins to be made. It can cause other proteins to be degraded. Um, there are there are machinery. There's machinery in the cell that's like a garbage disposal that gets rid of old proteins that need to need to be disposed of. And it turns out that getting rid of proteins is just as important for memory formation as making new proteins, mm-hmm. cleaning um, out the the junk, getting yes, rid of old stuff. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that new stuff can be made. Um, certainly, um, well, I'll just leave it at that, but there's so, you know, there are a lot of things that we're, that we're discovering, um, that actually more recently, we're starting not only to look at neurons, which are the tend to get most of the attention in neuroscience research. Um, but there's other cells in the brain called glia that, uh, historically have just been thought of as supports, if you will. Um, but That's it turns what I out learned. That, it was right, like, exactly. these are useless. Don't worry about them. Just yep. dissect Ex- it from the brain and throw it away. <laughs> okay. Exactly. <laughs> and Literally. it turns out that, you know, that the, the, 
there, there are multiple forms of glia and that they are really actually very important in, um, in regulating memory processes and estrogens can affect the functioning of those, uh, of those cells as well, because they have their own estrogen mailboxes. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we're trying to, to figure out, you know, how do all of those brain cells work together to, uh, to make memories and how does estrogen, how do estrogens, um, regulate the function of those cells. Are you, are you funded by the NIH? And the reason I ask for some feedback on where your funding sources are is yeah. because we have such a lack of R&D budgets in women's health, right? Pharma is yes. not paying. Like you can't expect angel investors to invest in research and development. Like it's supposed to be through government grants and other countries, yes. femtech companies are funded in the millions via their government mm-hmm. to do research. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we find here is that because we don't have an Institute of Women's Health, like it's hard to find a pot of money. So do you find your pots of money through like neuro, is there a neuroscience or brain health Institute or tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, because yes, historically women's health research, and I'd say currently women's health research is, is really underfunded, um, compared to all other aspects of research. So, uh, we are funded, um, by the National Institutes of Health as well as by, um, other organizations. So we currently have a grant, uh, from the Alzheimer's Association to study one of our estrogenics compounds in, uh, a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but we've had uh, multiple uh, f- uh, grants from the NIH, uh, the different institutes of the NIH. So there's the National Institute of Mental Health has funded us for several years. The National Institute on Aging is um, has funded my own personal research, but is also currently funding one of Estrogenics' projects. Um, but you're right that there is no National Institute of Women's Health, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is an Office of Research um, on Women's Health, um, but they intersect with, with all of the institutes and, and try to, um, try to get some funding specifically for, for women's health related research. But, um, uh, even I have find it found it somewhat difficult to, to get funding through that office because oftentimes they're interested, not only they're interested in sex and gender research and, um, it's difficult if it's very difficult to model model gender in animal models because they don't <laughs> yeah. have gender, it's a societal construct. <laughs> it's a societal uh, construct. That's right. Yeah. Do you find so, that when you apply for these grants that they have any pushback on you only ch- looking at females? You know, or is there any like um, disadvantage there? Do you get forced to look at male memory too? <laughs> well, we do. We we do in our proposals. Uh, or many of the proposals, the basic research proposals include males as well. Um, and it's interesting because we will, uh, we have seen these, these sex differences in the way that male and female brains get to a similar outcome. So if we treat both males and females with estrogens, um, we see similar kinds of memory enhancements, but it seems like the, the, the letter uh, the letters that come from the mailboxes mm-hmm. are, are different in mm. males and females. And while that may seem like a really esoteric, um, finding for the purposes of drug development, that's really important because if you're basing the development of your drug on, you know, the, the letter that works in females, 
and it turns out that that letter doesn't work similarly in males, then you have a drug that's only going to work for half the population. You write in one letter in Mandarin and the other exactly. letter in French. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Looks a whole lot similar, maybe even says the same stuff, but yep. like it's also very different, right? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And so, you know, that's why it is important for us, you know, in, unless you're, so we, we do have one, um, uh, we do have one research grant from the National Institute on Aging that is only in females, and that's because it's our it's our uh, drug development project to specifically look at um, symptoms of menopause, <laughs> so memory loss and hot flashes in a mouse model. And men don't have menopause, so you know if you're studying menopause, pregnancy related issues, then it's you know it's it's clear that there's you only kind of get around you know, the female only. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. it sounds kind of crazy though that you just said literally the receptors in our brains are different, and if we're going to create a compound, we need to separate sex, and that is yeah. not dependent on pregnancy or menopause. That is exactly. literally just sex is a biological variable. Exactly. So how many other drugs are out there that work? Oh, pretty yeah. well for men, but actually not at all for females. Yes. Sex yep. wise for males, yep. but uh, that actually doesn't work at all for females. But because we combine that data, we thought, oh, this is like a decent drug, but it's actually like only works in males, right? Yeah, or or maybe it works at different doses in females, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really important, and that's that that's really been the push for the 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 NIH to include women in all sorts of research studies at females and research studies because you have to. T- I mean, how can you not? test the effects of your new drug on, you know, the in- <laughs> representatives well, of the entire population. Yeah, um, they do though, right? I know, it, it seems, <laughs> seems obvious, but uh, it hasn't it been is. the case. Wow, exactly. well, this has been so, so, so interesting. I want to talk about estrogenics. What is yeah. it? What do, you, what do you guys, what are your goals? And tell us about what you're working on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. So, um, so estrogenics really arose from basic research. So estrogenics therapeutic Inc is a company that, um, I uh, helped to co-found, um, in 2018. So, uh, my other two co-founders are, uh, Bill Donaldson, um, most recently of Marquette university. He retired from Marquette where he was a chemistry professor for, I think 35 years. Um, he retired a couple of years ago to be the CEO of estrogenics. And then um, Daniel Sem used to be Bill's colleague at Marquette, where they first started collaborating. And then uh, recently, um, he moved to uh, another local university here in the Milwaukee area, Concordia University, Wisconsin. Um, he's a pharmacologist, biochemist, lawyer, uh, you name it. Uh, Dan, Dan can do it. But um, so Dan approached me around 2015. Um, he and Bill had been... Um, collaborating. So Bill is a synthetic chemist. And so he makes libraries of, of different compounds through magic. I don't understand. And, um, he had been designed, trying to design estrogen receptor antagonists for purposes of breast cancer. Um, but it turns out that the co- the compounds he had made were not really good antagonists. They were, but they were really good agonists, which means that they say open the mailbox and uh, uh, an antagonist would close the mailbox and prevent the letter from being delivered. An agonist would open that mailbox, and he found they found that they had these. Um, I'd mentioned the different types of of mailboxes for the different estrogen receptors, so we can call one estrogen receptor alpha another one, estrogen receptor beta. And then there's a third one that we won't talk about. It's called G-protein coupled estrogen receptor. And 
you know, we can talk about that if you'd like. But the, really the main two that, that we're interested in are the ones called alpha and beta. Um, and they can, either one of them can bind to estrogens and deliver the letter. But it turns out that, uh, and that's true of memory too. So alpha and beta mailboxes can promote memory. But when it comes to some of the side effects of hormone therapy that have been reported, the uh, in- the slight increased risks of things like breast cancer and uterine cancer and, and cardiovascular disease, those seem to be due to the alpha mailbox in, mm-hmm. you know, breast tissue and uterine tissue, but not to the beta receptor. And so it turns out that Bill had made some really good beta selective agonists. And so they were looking for somebody to test the, the memory effects of this compound. So, so his compound opened mailbox B really well. Exactly. Allowing the estrogen's letters to get in. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And they knew that that could potentially benefit memory. And so um, they asked around town and they found somebody who said, well, you have uh, an expert on this right here in town. So why don't you you talk to her? So the three of us submitted uh, a grant to the NIH that did get funded. And we had that grant, we were able to, re- it's a three-year grant, we had that renewed. So we had that grant for six years and that funded all of the initial basic research that um, allowed us to show that our, our novel compound, which is highly selective and specific for the beta mailbox, could enhance memory in female mice um, that had had their ovaries removed. So it's a, a model of menopause. Um, and then eventually we started, you know, we, we kind of talked to women and, and, and physicians and said, well, might this be something you're interested in? And they said, well, maybe, but we're really more concerned about hot flashes. Um, and so then I, we said, so my, you know, Bill and Dan looked at me and said, well, can we test that in your mice? And I said, I don't know anything about hot flashes, how to, <laughs> how to make a hot flash in a mouse or how to, you know, test whether they're having a hot flash. Yeah. But I had, a, I had a really um, intrepid, outstanding graduate student um, who had just joined the lab. This is around 2018. Um, and so he delved into the literature, he talked to people in the field and figured out how we could, um, induce and measure a hot flash in mice. And so we simply, we use an injection of a, of a drug that affects the thermoregulatory centers in the brain that causes, um, mice to have their version of a hot flash. And so we, we measure that by doing infrared imaging of their tails and, you know, because they they can't they don't sweat like we do to release heat, and unlike dogs, they can't pant, so they release heat out their tails. Oh and my so, god! I just yeah, you know, I learned a lot today. This is not the biggest <laughs> learning I take. I promise you that. But I did. That's new information. I didn't it know was that. new for us too. You know, <laughs> it's um. So it was really it's it was fairly easy for us. So we just got an infrared camera, like you know, contractors cool, yeah. might use to kind of see heat sources in a in a house that are under construction. And um, you know, we suspend that over the cage after we've given them an injection of this drug that causes increased heat. Um, and uh, we can just watch. It's amazing. You can see their tails go from sort of bluish color, the cool colors, to bright red. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> and um, and it does that really quickly, really fast onset, like a hot flash, and it's temporary um, in the mice. It lasts about ten minutes or so before their temperature goes back down to normal, um, and we can see that 
if we give the animals uh, 17 beta estradiol, which is the most potent of the estrogens, uh, or our compound, that we can see a reduction in that hot flash. Yeah. Um, so we use that as a, as a model for, for hot flashes in our mice. Um, um, do you think that the, um, uh, people, the doctors and patients saying that like hot flashes were worse, like to, or something that they more rather have a drug that, uh, you know, targets versus memory loss. Like, I don't, I just can't help but have some like sexist ideas about like women keeping their composure being more important than women, like maintaining their intellectual integrity. Like, I don't know. Am I reading well, too far into that? Or like, <laughs> I just, if I was to like pick a hot flashes or memory loss, like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Perhaps. I think the thing with hot flashes is that they're so disruptive. Like mm-hmm. they really come on, they're very uncomfortable. Um, and they're like, you know, women either kind of uh, stop what they're doing at the time and they kind of have to, you know, fan themselves or leave the room or, or whatever. And they're embarrassing. There's it's just a whole suite of things. And the thing with hot flashes is that they also can interrupt women's memory, particularly if they happen at night. So women have these, these can have hot flashes, thousands of, you know, at, at, at night, hot sweat, night sweats, and it can disrupt their sleep. And as we know, sleep disruptions can affect cognition and, and memory. All right, you sold on. me, you so, sold me. Yeah, flashes so a whole, are important. Yeah, they're <laughs> definitely important. And in fact, there, there are these, uh, in women, there's, cor- you know, there's good correlation, not good, but there's you know, co- correlation suggesting that the more hot flashes that women have in their 50s, their early 50s when they're going through menopause, the greater their risk of dementia later wow. on. Yeah, and so it's it's really wow. you know so there are, there are two things of mm. course there are some women who are who don't have hot flashes who are having cognitive um, mm-hmm. problems and so you know every the thing that that I think is becoming and I'm sure you and and your listeners and and the people you talk to um, have talked about this is that menopause involves it's so many symptoms that it's. Like every woman will have, you know, like check this one, this one, this one, but somebody else will have this one and this one and this one. It's just so individualized. Some women don't suffer from hot flashes, but have vaginal dryness and have, you know, some cognitive changes. And and so many, it's so individualized um, Mm -hmm. what women experience as they go through um, menopause that, um, for some women, you know, I've, I've been contacted by, by some women through the, the estrogenics website who are looking for help and somebody to, to say, you know, my physician, uh, won't prescribe estrogen therapy for me because they say it's irresponsible because of the cancer risks. Mm -hmm. But I really, I need it. Like I, I can't concentrate I'm having difficulty remembering things and I really want to try it. Can you help me? Is there any information that you can give me that might convince my provider to let me try this? And I mean, women shouldn't be in that position. They should be the ones making decisions about their medical care, not physicians who are gatekeepers to say, oh, you know, it, you know, these are clinically proven treatments that millions of women have taken and current hormone treatments are very low dose and there's you know opportunity to increase doses and adjust doses and multiple different kinds of you know, oral there's patches there's all sorts of different formulations so um you know women should be in the driver's seat being able to make these decisions um not physicians so whereas cognitive enhancement 
or dementia prevention may be more important for some women, maybe not for others, but mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to at estrogenics, we're trying to develop treatments that um, can address numbers of menopausal symptoms. We're mm-hmm. starting to look with our, with our lead compounds, we're starting up a collaboration looking at bone health. Good. Um, because it turns out that in talking to a specialist, my colleague here, who studies bone fractures, uh, that the the drugs that are available for women in menopause for bone healing do one thing. There are multiple kinds of, of, of these multiple types of drugs, but they all do one thing, which is prevent the loss of, of, of bone. And on one hand, that seems like a good idea. Um it can actually compromise the integrity of the bone and it's not helping to regenerate more bone. I mean, bones are just like any other tissues that you have mm-hmm. to turn over, you know, the tissues have to turn over every so often or to I mean, cells get old, <laughs> they wear out, they stop, uh, performing, um, optimally. So, yeah. So like, even uh, if you maintain the bone cells, they're all like really old cells that are yes. like not doing well anyways. So yes, it may yes, look like you exactly. have bone, but it's not strong bone. Exactly. Wow. So you're still prone to fracture. So, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that these, these compounds that we're working on will just help improve the quality of women's health, quality of women's lives as they, um, as they go through menopause. Incredible. Dr. Frick, this is amazing. How about you just end us with uh, what's next for estrogenics as we continue to watch your company? Yeah, yeah. So right now what we're trying to finish up some of our preclinical training and that's uh, preclinical testing. Sorry. So that's testing in animal models um, so that we can hopefully start advancing our first lead compound into clinical trials. And so we're talking to, you know, of course, in order to do that, you know, we need investment, right? And so while we definitely have had grant funding from the government, from uh, from the UW-Milwaukee Research Foundation and other foundations, um, really in order to do the kind of work that's necessary to get into human clinical trials, we need investment. So we've been talking to folks, to some angel investors, some some venture capital investors to uh, hopefully raise the kinds of funds that we need to to get these compounds, you know, into the hands of, of women so that they can start uh, benefiting in, in some yeah. way. So we're really, you know, excited about what the future can hold um, with our lead compounds and then hopefully developing some, some compounds to treat some of the other symptoms of, of menopause for women. Amazing. Thank you so much for tickling my scientific brain today. And oh, you're welcome. this episode is longer than normal, <laughs> but I don't care listeners. I hope you don't care either. This is amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Karen Frick, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and co-founder and chief scientific officer of Estrogenics Therapeutics. Learn more at estrogenics.com. That's E-S-T-R-I-G-E-N-I-X.com. Okay, fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. 
Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.